Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. I hope your weekend is going well. There are two interviews I want to discuss today in my opening rant, and then we'll open it up to calls. Uh, the first interview was given by General Valerie Zelushny. He is the Supreme Military Commander of Ukraine. And um, he told The Economist some things this week that I found very revealing and very candid. First of all, he said that he thinks that Russia is preparing a new offensive with 200,000 new troops. Uh, and he thinks they're going to try to take Kiev possibly as early as February um, or even actually January, he said. So that's that's his prediction. I do think Russia obviously is preparing something given that they've mobilized all these troops and Ukraine is still not, not negotiating. So I think that's a fair expectation. But uh, the way he described it, to me, he sounds worried um, because it doesn't sound to me like his army has the mili- the uh, equipment that it needs to be able to sustain another major Russian offensive. And so this is what Zaluzhny said. He says, it seems to me we are on the edge. Um, and if there are more attacks, he says, that is when soldiers, wives and children start freezing what kind of mood will the fighters be in without water, light, and heat? Can we talk about preparing reserves to keep fighting? He's asking that question. And I think he's there is expressing concern at just how this is going and how this was inevitably going to go, given that Ukraine only has so much in manpower and resources, and Russia is just so much bigger and so much stronger militarily. So I think Zaluzhny is now issuing a wake-up call. And... Um, And then he goes on to say, artillery plays a decisive role in this war. Therefore, everything really depends on the amount of supplies. And this determines the success of the battle in many cases. And then he basically uh, uh, offers a wish list of things he needs. He says, I know that I can beat this enemy, but I need resources. I need 300 tanks, 600 to 700 infantry fighting vehicles, 500 howitzers. Um, and then the economist, which interviewed Zaluzhny, goes on to know, to note, sorry, that quote, the incremental arsenal that Ukraine is seeking is bigger than the total armored forces of most European armies. So basically, Ukraine's needs far, ex- far exceed what Europe can possibly supply. And I think that is a reality that is now sinking in after nearly a year of war. And to me, again, not being a military expert, but just what I know about Russia's size and Ukraine's size, it's always made sense to me that eventually Russia would, by being patient enough, would have the upper hand. And, and that's what I see here in in these comments from General Saluzny. Because yes, he's saying that we can beat Russia, but he says, I need it on this condition. And the commission that he provides is something that I don't think can be met because I just don't think the weapons are there for uh, the West to supply Ukraine. So we'll see. But we could be looking at a a very decisive coming period and a very deadly one, uh, which is hard to imagine because things in Ukraine, of course, are, are terrible as we speak. Then there's another interview that was recently uh, happened. And that was given by Angela Merkel. Uh, the former German chancellor who helped broker the Minsk Accords. And that's something we've discussed a lot here. 
The, that was the agreement reached back in 2015 to basically end the civil war that began in Ukraine after the U.S.-backed coup of 2014. And the basic bargain of Minsk was that these Russian-backed rebels in the east would demilitarize. Uh, and in, in exchange, uh, they would gr- be granted some limited autonomy. So some respect for their cultural rights to speak their own language, some recognition of their identity as ethnic Russians inside of Ukraine. But they would stay inside of Ukraine. And that is how that war would end. Well, you know, Russia has complained for many years that basically Ukraine refused to implement its key obligations. And that was a big factor in the war break in Russia invading. And now we have an admission from Angela Merkel, who, you know, who as the German chancellor helped broker Minsk that I thought was really, really damning. Whether she means it or not, because I actually don't know if she's telling the truth, but this is what she said, at least. Um, she said that basically, uh, this about Minsk. She said, quote, the 2014 Minsk agreement was an attempt to give Ukraine time. Um, and Ukraine, she says, use this time to get stronger, as you can see today. The Ukraine of 2014, 2015 is not the Ukraine of today. Uh, and I very much doubt that the NATO countries could have done as much then as they, as they do now to help Ukraine. So Merkel is saying that Minsk, rather than being an effort to give Ukraine peace, it was an attempt to get to quote, give Ukraine time. And by that, she means time to build up to prepare for war with Russia. So she's basically saying, if you read between the lines, is that Minsk was a scam, that the West had never, never had any intention of actually ending that war in the Donbass and was just using the peace process, the peace accords to stall, to give Ukraine time to build up for war. Now, the reason why I don't take that at face value is because I do think a lot of effort was put into Minsk. I do think that, you know, uh, Merkel wanted to build Nord Stream 2, so which s- suggests that she wanted better ties with Russia. And I wonder if now she's just saying this to basically cater to hawkish critics inside her own country who are attacking her for the very fact that she ever engaged in peace talks with Russian-backed rebels and tried to a- end the war. But either way, whether she's telling the truth or not, uh, if, if she's telling the truth, then it's just a, a, a admission of complete cynicism and it will make it impossible for Russia to ever really trust the West ever again. But if she's, and if she's embellishing, then that's a reflection of how to the right things have gotten where she feels the need to renounce her own efforts to make peace, you know? So either way, I think it's a reflection of how ugly things are. Here's, here's another reflection. Uh, this is a headline in the New York Times today. It says, military spending surges, creating new boom for arms makers. The combination of the war in Ukraine and concern about longer term threats from Russia and China is driving a bipartisan push to increase U.S. capacity to produce weapons. And the article is basically just about how wonderful the Ukraine war has been for arms makers um, and how massively Pentagon budgets are expanding. And uh, so the head of Raytheon is quoted saying that, quote, we went through six years of stingers in 10 months. Um, it will take us multiple years to restock and replenish. So basically, he's saying that six years of stingers were fired off in Ukraine in a matter of 10 months, which is a lot of weaponry and a lot of profits for Raytheon to, 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 to rebuild that. Um, and this is what the Times also says, military spending next year is on track to reach its highest level 
in inflation-adjusted terms since the peaks in the costs of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars between 2008 and 2011 and the second highest in inflation-adjusted terms since World War II, a level that is more than the budgets for the next 10 largest cabinet agencies combined. So what a boon this war has been for the arms industry. What a, what a disaster it's been for everybody else. But this is one sector that's doing very well. And just to underscore that, there's an article recently in Vox, uh, Vox.com, which had, had a, obtained an invitation of a dinner that the Ukrainian embassy um, put on earlier this month, on Thursday, December 8th. And so it's, the invitation says, on the occasion of the 31st anniversary of the armed forces of Ukraine, the Ukraine ambassador and the defense attache invites you to this reception in D.C. It was at the Ronald Reagan building in D.C. At the bottom, the sponsors of the evening are, are listed, and they are Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, Lockheed Martin, and Ukraine House, which is basically the, you know, the, uh, like promoting U.S.-Ukraine relations. So this war has been so good for these arms makers that they even get listed on an invitation to an official Ukrainian government dinner. And um, they're going to get even wealthier in the months ahead as Russia presses ahead with this offensive. But as always, it's going to be Ukrainians who will suffer, um, especially with no detectable trace of peace, peace talks right now, at least as far as we can see. Maybe something's going on behind the scenes. Okay, that is my rant. Um, let Let's take some calls. Oh, and by the way, let me say one more thing. Uh, what Merkel said about Minsk and how it was just meant to buy time, um, bolstering the case that she was being serious uh, and sincere in that statement was that uh, Petro Poroshenko, who was the president who signed Minsk, he said the exact same thing. He said that Minsk led us, gave us eight years to build up the economy and the army to be ready for war. So Merkel is not alone in saying that. And... Um, Either way, it's very damning. It's very damning for the countries that were involved in Minsk, and it's very damning for the prospects of a negotiated peace in the future because, again, you know, Russians will be able to point to statements like this and say, how can we ever make peace with these people when they make agreements that they explicitly intend to use just to make time for war? You know, so it's just, um, it's, it's amazing how little space there is for diplomacy when it comes to this war. Okay. All right. Let's take some calls. Brent, go ahead. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Hi. So um, I was watching an interview with uh, Chris Cuomo and uh, Matt Taibbi. I'm pronouncing that right? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. um, Chris Cuomo asked him a question about um, why – you mentioned the point about um, the, the arms dealers wanting to make money. But Chris Cuomo brought up a point about um, how much of it is money making for the military industrial complex. How much of it is um, the Ukrainians wanting to get Russians out of their borders? And he asked a question to Matt. um, Should the Russians leaving the part, leaving um, Ukrainian territory and not occupying anymore? Should that be... um, a, a negotiation, a point of negotiation to end the war. And Matt said something which surprised me a lot. He said that that question was above his pay grade. And um, maybe it's above your pay grade too. About, I just want to ask you that same question. Um, 
should Russia uh, be required to leave um, territory that's not theirs in order to um, start the process of um, negotiation, diplomacy, and peace? Well, in the abstract, in principle, of course, Ukraine has the right to demand that foreign troops leave its territory. So sure, they have the right to ask that. But the question is, is that realistic? And will that bring us closer to peace? And I think the answer is no. The problem is, and this is the part that gets lost in how this issue is discussed in establishment media. There's a history that either is true or it's not. Either it exists or it doesn't. And the way media works is just to basically ignore the relevant history. And in this case, the relevant history is there's been a war going on in Ukraine not since Russia invaded, but for the last eight years. Uh, It began with a coup that was backed by the U.S. And Russia feels now as if uh, its invasion is the only way to protect ethnic Russians who live inside Ukraine who've asked for Russia's help. And so demanding that Russia leave as a condition for peace is not going to solve that problem because Russia is not just going to is not going to leave especially when it also feels as if Ukraine is a threat to its security because it's being used as a NATO proxy. So um, either you recognize that there's been a war going on for eight years that needs to be resolved for any lasting peace, um, or you don't. And either you recognize that Russia has these concerns, whether you like them or not, about Ukraine being used to station missiles and um, station other offensive weaponry that can be aimed at Russia, um, and you can either ignore those concerns and just demand that Russia leaves, uh, or you can try to address them, or, le- or at least discuss them. And if you don't want to discuss them, you just demand that Russians leave first. And I think you're just basically saying you want the war to continue until every last Ukrainian who fights Russia is dead. So, yes, in principle, absolutely, anyone has the right to demand that a foreign occupier leave. But is that tethered to reality? No. In, in this case, I don't think it is. Right, right. And I think that's how established me, the way they worded it, like the way Chris Cuomo worded it, it, it seemed very, um, it seemed very convincing. Like, of course, like if an invading country that invades, of course you would, the Ukraine would want them to leave. I mean, that's common sense, but they don't talk, discuss the, the history of, of what happened years prior. And I feel that, um, by ignoring that history, the, more lives are only going to be lost. It's kind of like do you ignore that history and then more people get killed or you try to address them to um, possibly save lives. And I yeah. just found it surprising well, I, that Matt. <laughs> well, I, I didn't see this segment, so I, so I can't speak to it. But yeah, I mean, look, I'm, you know, it's this is not easy stuff to discuss. And so maybe Matt just didn't want to get into it. And, and that's fine, but okay. it's, uh, it's, you know, uh, this is the problem. And, and you know, th- that kind of question that Cuomo asked, you know, it's, it, it, it speaks to how, uh, how, how just deficient our media coverage is. Cause it just, it, it just ignores all the context that I think is pretty relevant to having any kind of informed, if you actually care about getting Russian forces to leave Ukraine, you have to be informed on what are the conditions under like in which they came in, like, like, like what was the background and, it's right. only by resolving that that you can get to a point where, where Russian forces can actually leave. And this is the point. I think this is where the people confuse you as being a pro-Russian, pro-Putin puppet. You're just discussing 
Russia's concerns. You're not saying they're right. That's I think I think people confuse those two things: uh, morality versus just reporting on Russia's side. Just reporting on Russia's side does not mean you agree with Russians' demands necessarily. You're just reporting on um, what they're what they want, and I feel people confuse that with you um, trying to advocate for the Russian invasion. I feel like that's why yeah, yeah. I, what I'm not doing, what, I, what, what I'm never doing is justifying the Russian invasion. I'm not going right. to pretend though. I'm not going to pretend though that I think right. Russia is just an imperialist that has no legitimate security concerns. I just don't think uh, like, I think right. any country in its position, especially the U S would have acted very similar. Um, and, uh, and I and I, I think these issues have to be negotiated. And you know, like Macron, uh, the president of France, said something recently too. He said that you know Russia's concerns are going to have to be addressed. Um, right. He said that you know uh, he was talking about security guarantees and all this stuff. And like that's his way of saying like yeah, all of the things we refused to talk to Russia about before the war began, we're going to have to talk uh, to them about it now. And unfortunately, this was Russia's way to get the West to listen in a really brutal way. But uh, this is this is unfortunate, and like this is a sad lesson that violence works in world affairs. That like, it's it's a that that diplomacy is just not it's not um, elevated to the importance that it needs to be. And, and so instead, you know, this is an example where violence is going to be shown to have worked because it got finally some to go. At least I think that's what that's what's going to happen, and that's part of the tragedy. Right, right, and is is does Matt not? understand these is he not experiencing these issues i'm sure he's very because you guys talk very highly of him or was he just trying to not like ruin the mood of the there's no there's no point in me speculating as to as to why matt answered the way he did but maybe he just you know look it's uh this stuff is a little messy maybe maybe he he just didn't want to get into it i don't know i don't know ah okay but thank you thank you brent thanks brent for the all right thank you all right thank you okay matt And Matt, if you're there, there's a microphone button. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Can you hear me, Aaron? Yeah. Oh, yes. So two things I got to speak on the uh, situations there. One would be uh, Angela Merkel's comment about the uh, Minsk agreements or Minsk P- uh, peace agreements being uh, a farce. And I would say to that there, I know you stated that um, you're not sure if she's lying or if she's being serious. But one, I would say um, with that, her comment comp- uh, coupled with uh, Poroshenko's comment, yeah. that the Minsk agreements were definitely a farce. Um, that kind of gives us like an idea that, yeah, this was the, uh, this was the idea the whole time to give Ukraine time to build up. But also another thing I took out of that um, statement or uh, reply that she said was also that the Ukraine of 2014 isn't the Ukraine of uh, today. And if I was Putin, I would definitely look deeper into that because one of the things is um, everybody's been saying that Ukraine has pretty much held up really well. Um, a lot better than a lot of people have thought. So I would look into that to see if possibly NATO troops were uh, possibly stationed in Ukraine there and that's who's fighting now or um, things of that nature. <clears throat> but um, overall, um, another thing I'll have to say is um, with the U.S. sending uh, Patriot missiles there to uh, Ukraine at this time, it kind of lets me know that they know, too, that the uh, ending is uh, coming coming upon Ukraine there as far as uh, the war goes or the war effort. And so um, I feel like that's a uh, that's the U.S. there kind of pretty much uh, raising the stakes there. 
or, um, you know, get, pretty much putting weapons into Ukraine there to kind of escalate the violence there. Not only that, to also try to have Russia uh, last out, possibly hit a NATO, a NATO country, things of that nature there. But those were just two of the things that stood out to me that was kind of surprising there. And if I was Russia, I definitely wouldn't negotiate at this time. Um, it would be a, 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 what word am I looking for here? Um, it, it would be unnego- like unnegotiated peace. It would be complete surrender if I was Russia at this point, because um, we can't take you at your word anymore. Um, and I'm not saying that uh, maybe Russia didn't negotiate in good faith either, but we know for a fact that, you know, the two, uh, that Ukraine and then also now we have it from uh, Germany, uh, Merkel there that, that, you know, they weren't negotiating in uh, good, uh, good faith. Not only that with the, um, what was that? The Nord Stream pipelines getting blown up. Um, you kind of just yeah. have to look at this as a way of always kind of just agitating Russia for them to lash out and to bring about this war. I uh, I agree with you. I agree with your assessment. I I I don't think Russia will be very interested in in diplomacy, um, especially after comments like this, because it's how do you how do you even go to your own people and say that you know we're negotiating with these people who just admitted that they or are claiming at least that they were lying to us this whole time on this really important agreement. We, we reached them uh, with, with the Mexico Accords. It's very, very difficult. It makes, and of course we, you know, admissions like this, like Merkel, it, it wasn't picked up at all in, in NATO state media. There's nothing here on this. It just doesn't matter, you know? So it's, yeah. Um, so I agree with you. Definitely. Thanks, for, thanks for the call. No problem. Keep doing great work, brother. Always uh, listening and reading your material, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Alberto. Hello. Hi there. Uh, uh, Apart from Poroshenko, there is a video of a Ukrainian guy. I think he's uh, as of battalion, even before the invasion of, of Russia, that said exactly the same that the Minsk agreements were 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 made just to give them time and said exactly the same. This this Ukrainian guy was a, a guerrilla man, uh, and uh, I don't know if 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 you heard uh, Alexander Mercuris, he said that uh, maybe uh, Angela Merkel is trying to save face because he has he's being accused for uh, provoking the dependence of uh, Germany to Russia because she proposed the uh, Nord Stream 2 and she helped Russia to to have the upper hand with the oil and gas and and maybe Angela Merkel is trying to say okay I, I'm not in, another Russian puppet uh, something like that uh, what has not been said is that where where is now the argument that Russia made an unprovoked attack that, he, that Russia had no apparent reason for for the invasion now that this this high grade uh, uh, Angela which I don't know if she signed something but she was broken the the Minsk agreements now with with Angela Merkel and doing this, uh, there's no no not one reason to say is, uh, Russia was unprovoked. It, it is now it's justified attack, 
And nobody's saying that, and the world should accept that it's not unprovoked. Only that. I got you. So because you're saying that because Angela Merkel admitted that Minsk was a fraud, then you can't say that Russia was uh, was unprovoked in yes. in going in. Yeah, interesting. Uh-huh. Okay, well, yeah. I mean, I've always thought it was silly to say uh, that the invasion was unprovoked, but yeah, I think you make a good point. This is um, this is more evidence of that for sure. For sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Gator. Hey, Aaron, how's it going? Hi there. Um, I'm just curious about kind of how you take things at the moment on a basis of a sort of a, a back test and a predictability basis. So it, it, Mersheimer Cohen's school of thought in predicting the war now and, and, and correctly, essentially, by my estimation, their analysis passes the back test um, over time and, and therefore their credibility has radically increased in my mind. But if you then take, for example, the Ukrainian uh, administration's position, their credibility to me has gone down a lot because even if you just take the point of the commencement of the, opera, the, the, the war, everything that has been said by Zelensky in his speeches in style, rhetoric and claims about combat capability and 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 also the West's backing of those lines, they actually seem to fail the back test because if we're now in a point where Ukraine is starting to use sort of increasingly desperate um, rhetoric in order to leave a more and more and more out of NATO, surely in my mind that shows that all of the claims that they made earlier about Ukraine can win, um, Ukraine deserves X amount of uh, war investment to the point where now we see that that's an untenable amount of uh, weaponry, for example, and funding, then essentially the, the position they put themselves in, in my mind, is that they're proving themselves to be further and further liars, essentially, of, this, of, the, of their, their assessment of the current situation, the situation as it existed in the past, and going forward. That, that would be my first thing. And the second thing is that if you then bring in kind of like the military analysis side of it, where you get into Scott Ritter and McGregor, even if they don't get exactly all the details right, and who could, who could in war, Ritter's been very consistent, and so has McGregor, really, in saying that NATO simply hasn't got the kit to sustain this beyond a certain point. And if we're at that point now, that sh- that makes a mockery of every Western mainstream report. So all Western mainstream credibility in the, in, in the possibility of a, a, um, a one outcome for the West seems to just pale off straight away. And then there's one final thing. Do you feel... Um, a, a, that what I'm saying is valid. Or do you have any pushback on that that I might need to take into account? And B, there is now this kind of argument that um, Zelensky is possibly being lined up to be booted out in favour of the current general. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I. Um, that's interesting. I don't know about that. I mean, we've heard for a long time that you know speculation that that Zelensky is expendable and. Um, that makes sense to me, but at the same time, he's he just got you know named Man of the Year by Time, and there's still a huge PR juggernaut around him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how easily replaceable he is, um, and I don't follow internal Ukrainian 
politics enough to know. But I think that's I think that's interesting and, and that's worth keeping an eye on. And yeah, I, I agree with everything else you said. And yeah, and look, there's been a huge effort made to make it look as if Russia's losing the war and there's all these really dubiously sourced articles in the Times and the Washington Post that usually the, the main source is always Ukrainian intelligence and um, I'm sure Western intelligence too, to make it seem as if the Russians are getting wiped out. But, but then you have um, the general, the top Ukrainian general, basically talking about how demoralized his forces are and how basically he says, like, unless I get all this equipment that he knows he's not going to get, then, 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 then Ukraine can't win, you know? So to me, uh, his comments were pretty damning to that whole narrative. But of course, it was given to The Economist. I don't think they're going to allow that kind of picture here in the U.S. because here you, you need to pick, uh, pick, uh, maintain the, the feeling, the sentiment that the war is going well for Ukraine. Mm. Just, just one observation. Um, there's actually now some uh, reporting that uh, Ukraine has admitted that they tried to target and assassinate the top general when he when he was on the ground in um, in Ukraine in around April, and mm. the Amer- the American narrative is that um, when they found out about that plan, they tried to talk Ukraine out of it, but it was too late, and mm. they made the attack anyway. Now I'm I'm thinking that this is this is just one of the other one of these early pre- um, progenitor pre- or precursor narratives that allows the U.S. to say. We are going to have to back off the regime now because yeah. this is the third or fourth time that they've done something that we didn't agree with, and we're losing control of them. They're they're departing from our required um, approach to this war, and so we're going to. That will be the excuse for them to scale back, step back a bit, and start to withdraw politically or some other way. And that's kind of possibly the beginning of the reverse ferret. Would that be reasonable to sort of be suspicious of that? I think that's totally reasonable. Why, why, why would U.S. officials now leak a claim that they basically intervened to stop Ukraine from hitting a Russian general? Because I think they want to leave the door, the door open to negotiations and they want to make it. It's kind of like good cop, bad cop. Like, oh, we, like we didn't know they wanted to do that and we weren't behind it. Um, so I think that's I, I, I agree with that interpretation. Totally. Cool. Look, thanks, Aaron. Always good to speak to you. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for calling. Okay. Sterling. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Hi there. So I was listening to an um, interview today with Alexander Dugan, who they call Putin's brain. And he was asked if China was to react to Taiwan as Russia did with Ukraine. um, What would they do? Would he would they act the same way? Um, and without missing a beat, he was so confident he, cause I thought he might be offended by the question. Um, he said, absolutely. They would absolutely react the same way. They would invade Taiwan, um, which pretty much was a no brainer to me. I don't think that's a far stretch for anybody. Um, but what he went on to say was how patient China is. And he said they were as patient as Russia, which I found a little threatening. Um, but I think that, but I <laughs> yeah. think they've shown that. I think they've been very strategic in this. I think we've just been like bulls in a china shop, throwing money at all these people. Um, it's been pretty crazy. But um, so there's that, which I thought was very interesting. And he's actually a pretty interesting human being. I have to say, a lot of people are really threatened by him. But I like that he tries to bring something new to the table. I'm not going to agree with a lot of it, but he's an interesting character, I think, in all of this with Russia. 
Um, and then I was reading a really crazy article today by a Democratic think tank, and maybe you've heard of it, um, Center for Strategic and International Studies. Have you heard this? I've heard of that think tank, yeah. Oh, my gosh. This article is such a propaganda. It's just even scary um, how they've written basically that we should be so grateful um, for all of the money that is being sent to such a worthy cause. It's called um, United States Aid to Ukraine, an investment whose benefits greatly exceed its cost. Wow. wow. And it is brutal. And it talks yeah. about, I think the thing that I found so mostly offensive, um, it says focusing on the price tag of aid instead of the value of what it buys, ignores the fact that the war in Ukraine has become the equivalent of a proxy war with Russia, which is true. Yeah. And a war and a war that can be fought. This is horrible, though. And a war that can be fought without any U.S. military casualties. It never goes on to mention Ukrainian casualties. Well, there we all. go. Exactly. And exactly. it says yeah. that unites most of the world's democracies behind a common cause. So this is where he's pulling in the NATO. I mean, mm. it's such propaganda and it's so awful to anybody involved in this that doesn't have billions of dollars and isn't going to make a fortune from the money laundering scam is what I see. Because I don't think we care if we win or lose ultimately. I mean, I, I just don't at this point. We would love to own Russia. Biden made that clear in the beginning of this when they said, oh, no, he didn't really mean to say that about Putin needing to be removed. We'd love to have their resources. We'd love to be rid of them for one for Israel, because it was such an insult to back Syria to have anything to do with Iran. I mean, Russia to the far right, as far as Pence and Pompeo being over there um, in 2019. I mean, come on. And when you said about Ant you totally get it. I mean, Angela Merkel, everybody moving right. I mean, this has been a far right thing for a very long time and just going after Russia. And I think it's just... Well, it's just pretty crazy, but this article was really frightening to me. And the Pritzker um, man who's the head of this think tank is also, um, I don't know how involved he is with Israel. I'd like to think all that all people who are Jewish, you know, care very much about Israel. Um, I think the Zionist thing, it's a little scary for a lot of people, but um, I don't know. It's all been pretty fascinating and it's always so much intrigue and so much to unpack. But I'm so glad that there are people like you unpacking it because some people just don't. They're not even going to go that far, and that's crazy. So anyway, I know that was a lot, but um, thanks for the opportunity for letting me vent or rant. Well, thank you, and, and, and thanks for telling us about that article, which I've looked up as you were speaking. And yes, it's by it's by Anthony Cordesman, who's like a you know a veteran DC bureaucrat who's served operative. Yeah, and <laughs> and so, but yeah, but what he says there about how you know there's a proxy war and it's of no cost to us because we're not losing our lives. I mean, that's exactly the attitude. That's why it's so funny when people get offended when critics uh, like us call it a proxy war as if it's somehow, as if we're somehow, uh, you know, speaking um, like, like, some, like saying something that is so offensive, but it's openly celebrated by the people who, who support the proxy war. You know, it's they so just, they, arrogant. It's yeah. so, it, 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 like we're all idiots. It's just, it's so insulting, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, so it's good. I'm glad I got to read that and rant about it. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot for the call. Okay, Sam. And I'll post a link to that article for people's reading pleasure in the chat. And Sam, if you're there, there's a microphone button to press at the bottom left to unmute yourself.
And if not, we'll move on to the next caller. But I'll give you a few more seconds. Sam, are you there? Okay. Uh, Woodsy. And here in the link is where I'm putting the article that was just mentioned in that call. Okay. Aaron. Hi there. Yes. How's it going? Big fan of yours. Hi there. Dad. Um, I'm just, I got a couple. I may take this like a different way. I just wanted to ask you a question. Have you read uh, Whitney's Web new book? There's two volumes, One Nation Under Blackmail. I have not, no. Um, well, when you correlate that or put that together with uh, The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, uh, I may not agree with his views on JFK, but the rest of the book's fascinating. It's just how much is organized crime involved even in today's, because this book does talk a lot about how organized crime was definitely involved with the Zionist movement, with the Hagnana. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, especially with groups like the Azov and stuff, how do you think, especially when organized crime was dealing arms all across the, uh, the world, especially South America, Central America, and to the Palestinians, into Palestine during the, uh, <clears throat> during the 40s and 50s and up to the 60s? probably to this day, how, how much do you think they're integrated in what's going on in the Ukraine? Because we do know now that a lot of so, arms have been flowing out of the Ukraine, some into Russia, Africa, you name it. So what would be the roles that the CIA is still u- using organized crime? I know that's not talked about that much anymore, but it's just from my personal experiences. I know people who are in higher levels and they're very integrated with whether it be local police. And I'm from British Columbia, so I know you're from here also. Yeah. Um, What's your yeah, take? I, I don't know about you know the the like the love the level of involvement of organized crime and and all this stuff. What I do know is that um, the president of Nigeria, Buhari, just issued a warning that weapons from the Ukraine war are coming into his region. Um, this was in, uh, reported in, in, in African, uh, media this week. Um, here's an article, here's an excerpt from it. Uh, the president, Major General Muhammadu Buhari, uh, on Tuesday said weapons being used for the war in Ukraine and Russia were filtering into the Lake Chad and Sahel regions. He therefore called for increased collaborative actions by border control agencies and other security services to stop the circulation of illegal weapons. So that's the president of Nigeria alleging this. I haven't looked into it beyond that, but um, there's just, it's not surprising if this is what's happening. Cause when you flood a corrupt country like Ukraine, that's in the midst of a horrible war, of course there's going to be uh, people taking advantage of that and shipping off the weapons for profit. And um, this, this, this is just a legacy of proxy wars. Like in, in Libya, you know, the U.S. and its allies not only destroyed Libya, but they also, in the process, created a bonanza for weapons from Gaddafi's stockpile to go to countries like neighboring Mali, where they massively fueled violence there. Um, you know, fueled those those ga- those militant groups that that remember like those you know uh, like bring home our girls, like those those young girls who were kidnapped. Um, oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a that I, I'm pretty sure. I can't say this for sure, but I'm pretty sure there was a tie to the Libyan war there that these militants actually had been empowered by 
the destruction of Libya. And it even got weapons from that. And of course, weapons from Libya also went to Syria. So these things always have a huge spillover effect. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if you know, organized crime is making a killing. I just don't know the, the specifics about exactly who. Well, well, I think you should read that book. It's pretty fascinating because it does, it, I mean, it talks a lot about Roy Cohen and she does a really good job of kind of putting together uh, like the Brothmans from Canada with the Hudson Bay Company and, and um, Seagram's and how these guys were all connected. And like that stuff just doesn't go away. And like the legacy of Sam Brothman, he, he never wanted to talk to his children about uh, their legging history. Uh, but it gets into the Rosensteel. And these, these, these guys were like, and whether it be Cat, which later turned into Air America, these guys were heavily involved in this. And they were working with the CIA to not only facilitate an arms um, transportation, Mm. Uh, but then started stockpiling all their their money, especially with Meyer Lansky and stuff. And they started buying into aerospace and buying into arms, making machines and all that stuff. So I'm just like, that stuff is part of our history. And obviously, it's integrated into how, you know, guys like Donald Trump pretend like they're gangsters. Um, and Roy Cohen was his mentor. So I'm just, you know... No one ever really talks about it. I know you guys do a really good job on exposing corruption within, whether it be in Nicaragua or, you know, what these politicians, if they're fake lefties and all this stuff. But the, just to negate the fact that we're still, the CIA, the, whether the FBI, whatever, they're not still using these organized crime syndicates to actually facilitate. Yeah, I got you. You know, this all reminds me, um, the parents of the actor Olivia Wilde, uh, Andrew and Leslie Coburn, they're journalists and they've made a whole series of amazing documentaries for Frontline, uh, like back in the day, like back in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, and so, and they used to air on Frontline, a major, you know, mainstream show on PBS, some amazing stuff, including how the CIA was involved in gun running and drug dealing uh, with some really shady people. And uh, so, listen, I, I have a little clip of it here, which, which I'll just play. They, just th- this was aired on national television in May 19 in May 1988 and it's something you can never get on the air today but this is what this is a bit of what was reported this is frontline with Judy Woodruff tonight's frontline investigation traces the CIA's involvement with drug lords back to the agency's birth following World War II it is a long history that asks this question. In the war on drugs, which side is the CIA on? Our program was produced by Leslie and Andrew Coburn. It is called Guns, Drugs, and the CIA, and is reported by Leslie Coburn. So, I mean, and it's an amazing documentary, which is available on YouTube in in full, and I really recommend it. And, um, so there's a long history of this kind of stuff, and there was a time when actually U.S. journalists were allowed to cover it. And uh, now that this is the kind of stuff that's only really done on the margins of U.S. media, but it's it's uh, it's just as important. One last thing, like it's really funny too when you're reading these books, um, especially when they usually cite, or just the, as you were saying before, they usually cite things from like a Time article or um, an Esquire or something, and they're 
they're talking about organized crime, which that's what I was trying to get at. You never see these done anymore, whether people are not only afraid to <laughs> for their lives or just because it's so integrated into the system that you just seem like a, a I don't know, like a conspiracy theorist when you're when you're talking about how integrated it is. And if I didn't right. have any per- personal, uh, I'm not going to talk about it here, but if I didn't know personally how some people are connected with people you would never think, you'd be like, oh my God, really? Um, that's why I just try to think like, there's no reason that we would talk about Nazis in in the Ukraine and then all of a sudden now we switch 180, well, not you guys, but the mainstream media, where now there's apparently no Nazis or that they've assimilated into a more, I'm putting air quotes up, uh, a hospitable or, uh, I don't know. I got you. Uh, we're going to move on because I have other calls to get to. So okay. Thanks Sorry. Thanks. No, really good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Ice Ice, which I'm sure ends in baby. Hello. Um, Ice Ice Baby, are you there? If you are, there's a mute button in the bottom left to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll move on. And you can jump back in the queue if you figure it out. Okay. Zach. Hey, Aaron. Hey there. Hey, uh, kind of going off with the last speaker or the last caller was talking about, and I'm sorry, I jumped in a little late, so I'm not sure if you talked about this, but, you know, I talked to my friends the other day and I'm saying, you know, do you really support the U.S. backing uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine? You know, and you've talked a lot about the like 20, I think you've mentioned a few times that in 2018, like the U.S., you know, declared the Azov Battalion as a uh, state sponsor of terrorism or, or, or something like a, you know, I, I don't know the proper terminology, but I just wonder kind of what that last caller was saying, like, do we not like still recognize it or like, is there no data to show the like infiltration of the Azov Battalion? Like what are, you know, what's the evidence that you have on, you know, how powerful the Azov Battalion is in the current Ukrainian army? Well, they're, I mean, they, they led the battle of Mariupol uh, recently where, you know, there was like that standoff where they were basically holed up in a steel plant and, and, and like they were basically like the main fighting force in Mariupol, for example. So that's them taking control of fighting in one, in one really important city. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's a good example uh, of their major role in the Ukrainian military. And they're, you know, they have all sorts of commanders and who that are in high positions. And, um, that's been the case for a long time. Hmm. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, are you, when is your book going to be done? Uh, hopefully very soon. <laughs> hopefully very soon. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. the, the last one, uh, just Aaron, I know, and I don't know how comfortable you comfortable you feel answering this question. So, you know, no, no issue there, but like, you know, you do you max, um, couple other folks that you know i listen to because of you all um you know do do some pretty independent journalism i mean including matt taibbi you know in in some ways but like um do you receive threats for the work that you do just i'm just i'm just curious uh yeah i have but but nothing that i take seriously you know like if someone sends sends you an email 
threatening violence. Um, first of all, I think if anyone was going to wanted to actually inf- inf- inflict violence on me, they probably wouldn't write me to write me to threaten it. I think they just do it, you know? So, um, yeah. So, so I have gotten some really hostile and threatening emails, but I don't really take them too seriously. I, I, I think that just people, you know, just being, um, uh, just being mean and, and, and being angry, but yeah. So, Yes, like I receive threats, but it's not. I don't think that I'm in any kind of danger. Well, I mean, you are challenging like power systems in our country, you know. Yeah, I know, but you know, look, uh, if ever I have something really crazy, hugely explosive, maybe I'll get some more threats. But I, right now, I, you know, I just don't think. I don't think anybody in a, in that kind of position would care enough about what I'm doing to to want to threaten me. That's that's my impression. Well, hey, I'll let other callers call in. Thank you so much for all you do. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. William. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, I put in the live chat, have you heard of the Smith-Munt Modernization Act of 2012 that got baked into the national the NDAA in 2013? Are you familiar with that? You know, I've heard that name, but I, I don't remember what it, what it's about. All right, folks, it's in the live chat. It's unbelievable. Well, the first Smith-Munn Act was 1948, where the the legislation was such that the State Department cannot do domestic propaganda, you know, through media. Do you follow right. me? Okay. Yeah. So the Modernization Act of 2012 permits it if it meets the State Department's end. So they, they, right. they did a 180 on it. Yeah. Meaning they could yep. domestic, they could use all forms of media, Aaron, movies, television, whatever, to propagandize us if it met their desires. I mean, wow, is that crazy? I mean, I don't know how else to say it. So I put a link in the live chat for people who are interested, and I copied some of the text off the article, um, and you can explore it. But um, I don't want to like hold you to, to it because you haven't maybe not familiar with it, but the concept has got to be shocking to most people. It is, it was to me when I stumbled on this. Um, any, any ideas or feedback or you want time to think about it and we'll talk another time. Or I will, I will check it out and, and we can discuss it next time. So, but thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. And uh, good work on everything. And, you know, you're right. Parashenko, uh, every, you know, I like Scott Ritter. I like Colonel Salente, Judge Napolitano, Colonel McGregor. They're all bringing, trying to bring the information, a balanced information. They're, they've had rallies against anti-war rallies in New York. You know what I mean? They're yeah. all bringing the truth, and they can't get the mainstream media to come anywhere near it. You know what I mean? So kudos for what you guys are doing, because without you all, we'd be left in the dark pursuant the Smith-Mutt Act of 2012. <laughs> you know what I mean? Crazy. So anyway. Thank you, oh, Will. Your father's work. Your father's Save work. It. Awesome. I was listening to his videos. I really appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Well. Well. Thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, calling in. I appreciate it. Um, okay, Maria. Good evening, Aaron. Uh, Good evening. Um, I, I just can't stop wondering. I know how crony capitalism works. I know. We have no hope for campaign finance reform, but 
I do, I do wonder all the time about what we can do to oppose the corporate media propaganda, because it's just you don't know what's happening with anything if you, unless you really go out of your way to find people like you, Brianna Joy Gray. Useful idiots, Matt Taibbi. I what? What's the alternative to aside from finding and going out of your way to finding independent media? Is there any way to take down and oppose effectively, you know, corporate news propaganda? Um. Uh. I don't really know of any magic recipe. It it just takes, you know, if there's a topic you care about, you do you do research and like there are groups like um, Fair Fair dot org, fairness and accuracy and reporting, and they're basically just devoted to like debunking and correcting corporate media. But um, you know, it's uh, it's a lot of work, and uh, it's hard to get people to pay attention because there's just so much propaganda and so much to debunk. You know, so. I wish I knew the answer to that question, but I just, unfortunately, the only way is to try to catch what you can and try to, um, you know, uh, support people who you think are doing, a, like, a good job at at challenging mainstream propaganda. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll keep doing it, but I'll, I wish there was more that I could do. I hear you. Well, we, I think we all feel that way. So you're not alone in that. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Okay. Masha. Hey, I just uh, basically called to confirm, um, like, most of Slavic culture's cultural affinity to Chinese patients. And it's not, like, a thought that's original to Dugan and not when he exclusively described but for multiple generations there's been this feeling among sort of slavs in um you know first of all in socialist and communist uh, and like satellite countries at the time and in the modern context too about the way china was able to be so patient um in terms of like not not rushing the the hong kong issue and etc right so that's i think like a greater um, cultural affinity that maybe Westerners could um, could be made aware of. Like there's um, also in business etiquette. Uh, like there's there's a lot there's a lot in common there that could be potentially troubling, especially to Americans. You know who assume like who just I think basically have on board a sort of like Orientalism, like that everything east of Lebanon is just like impossibly exotic and weird, do you know? And like maybe sometimes assume that the same is true for, uh, you know, the, the Slavic cultures that are broadly considered European. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. And, uh, and just to also point out that that patience also comes from like a deeply held understanding of our histories. And that's an, another thing that I'm, I'm certain that certain like modern Americans can't, really begin to uh to, to understand viscerally right because i think that so many of them are like you know frankly demented by just their lack of education and their 
they seem not to be allowed to even know their own history past, you know, like maybe 10 years, like as evidenced by, you know, every generation's just utter shock and surprise that the FBI and the CIA and like, you know, other of these like alphabet organizations might have gotten up to some shady things. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That is all. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Okay. We'll take, I think Zach, you already called. So we'll take chip. Hi, Aaron. How you doing? Hi there. Oh, good. I just was hoping you'd hear me. Um, so I'm going to go off on a little bit different angle on all of this stuff. And every, all the reporting that you and Katie and Matt and uh, what's Anya Parenthal and, 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 you know, the list just goes on and on. It's all really essential reporting. But to a certain degree, I think it's reporting on the symptoms of an underlying disease called empire. And we talk about empire sort of cursorily. I don't think there's a deep understanding of what that really means. And if you think about the United States, and even before there was a United States, it's always been expansionist. But for the first hundred years or so, it was constrained just to the North American continent. But in the 1890s, there was the Mexican-American War, and there was a guy named Mark Twain, who was a pretty astute observer of human behavior, and he said words to the effect that we don't want to become Britain. This is the beginning of stepping out into a new way of being. And the antithesis of what John Adams had said about not wanting to go abroad seeking monsters to destroy, and, and Twain was echoing that sentiment. And then we go on to the First World War, and I'm sure you're familiar with Bernays and the beginnings of what became ultimately, um, I guess you'd say, uh, public relations, but in the end becomes the mechanism for swaying tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people to the will of a small group of people. And that, of course, progressed on through the Nazis and then was sort of small ways manifest in the McCarthy era. You know what I'm saying. I mean, it just goes sort of on and on and on. And so I think people are pretty smart and I think we get really agitated over incidents. As huge as the Ukraine war is, as huge as the million dead Iraqis were, as huge as the hundreds of thousands of dead Central Americans in the 80s, and, and on and on and on, as huge as all those individual incidents are, they are results of the disease of empire. And when I say that I think people are smart, I think if it were possible to start explaining not necessarily just what one incident means, you know, what does it mean for the U.S. to be in a proxy war with Russia? That's important. But how did we get here? And to, to sustain a discussion over describing the progress of how we got here. As an example, 
Um, there's large concern over the deep state, right? Well, how did the deep state start? And in my opinion, the the genus of the deep state began in 1942 with the Manhattan Project, which was the first unbounded black project that nobody knew anything about, including the vice president of the United States. And that set off a chain of events that ultimately produced Alan Dulles. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. And so uh, what I'm saying, I'll, I'll just finish with this. I think that if if there was a sustained description of the emergence of all these processes, that people would begin to take notice. Mm-hmm. And anyway, that's that's what I wanted yeah, to enough. say. Yeah, fair enough. Look, uh, you know, everyone can only take on so much, and I have my areas of focus. And but uh, everything you've just laid out is uh, obviously really vital history. And um, you know, someone I, th- you know, uh, obviously there are great books. Um, for example, I'm thinking of William Blum's book, Killing Hope, which is all about the various CIA interventions. And, and a, pe- a few people tonight have mentioned The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, I think, right? Uh, about the Dulles brothers. And, um, I, I'll, you know, um, it, you know, I, my focus is on the stories that I, that I cover. And, and, uh, I let, I try to let people draw their own conclusions. I just want to get facts out there about stories that I think are important. But, um, yeah, look, I I agree, and, and the history you lay out is something I, I do think we all have to all understand to be able to properly analyze. Contextualize. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Bye. All right, we'll take one more call, which is Johnny GL. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Hi there. Appreciate the uh, the late night show. It uh, makes for a smaller line and lets me sneak in at the end there. <laughs> Appreciate that, man. Uh, opportunistically jumping in right as you wrap up. Hey, uh, a couple quick questions for you. Any optimism? Uh, I saw the um, headline that the new Republican House might take a look at those 51 or whatever number of in, uh, intelligence-related and former intelligence that uh, threw out the idea, you know, that, that called the Hunter Biden leaks Russian propaganda. The Republican House might take a look at those, that letter they signed and those statements. Do you think any, anything interesting might come out of that? And the other well, one it'd I be funny. To... It would make for good oh, comedy. Okay. It would make for good comedy because basically uh, they'd, be, they'd be called before Congress and would have to say, you know, on what basis did you say that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation or, or, or possible Russian with disinformation and what could they say nothing you know they'd have to basically say a republican committee members gonna ask i mean the republican committee members are gonna know the answer to that question and yeah well, so, still so ask saying, it and humiliate them well what i'm saying is if they want to create that 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 uh theater which, yeah yeah which i think would benefit them electorally then yeah they will but do i have faith that republicans will actually engage in real oversight no um Oh, I, I think, was just curious if we could get any any dirt dug up on it, you know. Well, who knows? Listen, I mean, I, I'd imagine it would. I'd imagine it probably go the way of the um, the uh, Durham report, where we get a little bit here and there, but it was mostly engineered as a cover up, right? Well, we don't know. By the way, we don't know what we're going to get from Durham. I, the, to me, the jury. Oh, still you think out the jury's that. still out on that? Yeah, for sure. 
for sure. Oh, okay. we have right. I thought it, I was starting to see that as mostly like, you know, ring fencing the FBI at the expense yeah, of, you know, some of the. I, uh, I get that. I, 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 I understand why. But then if you look at what came out from the trials, uh, there's been some interesting stuff. And I, actually, I'm writing on that now. I'll have an article on that, you know, in the coming weeks. But there's actually been uh, Durham's got out some some important stuff. And, uh, right. and we'll, we'll see what else then. All right. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I, right. I will suspend my uh, spend, suspend my belief. The other thing I wanted to ask about is um, Turkey and Russia seem to be coming together over Syria. Uh, any any thoughts on that, or any any input on that one? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll take the answer offline. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Yeah, I uh, Turkey and Russia have a weird relationship. They they speak, they cooperate, but yet, you know, like Turkish weapons are being used by Ukraine to. Uh, to fight Russians, and there's that. And of course, Turkey is propping up an Al Qaeda controlled province inside Idlib, um, which is the enemy of the Syrian government and its ally Russia. So, but uh, now it looks as if, Tur- as if Erdogan and Putin are talking more, and maybe it's because Erdogan realizes that for him to succeed, he needs to get along better with Russia. I don't know. But um, yeah, I haven't followed those developments in Syria as much as I'd like to, and I'll have to catch up on that to give you a better answer uh, after I get more informed. And we're going to wrap it there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You can catch my writing at matthew.substack.com, and I'll be back on here tomorrow with Katie Halper at 11 a.m. Eastern Time uh, doing the Useful Idiots uh, after Monday morning show on here. And uh, that's it. Have a great rest of your day, and thank you for spending some time with me. Bye, everybody.